This is Contact Mike. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Doe. It's a podcast about the things that make us human. Moments of change, indecision and, well, well, contact. Contact. Contact Mike is a podcast by Sarah Walker. Oh, we've got a recording light, like real professionals. And Flo Kilpatrick. I hope you got all of that and that whole story can be your ident. <laughs> oh, no. It's produced by Kieran Ruffles. Representing the mid-low frequencies. And it's going to start. going to start. Now. now. Chapter 1. Since we last spoke... A new species of parrot has been discovered in Mexico. The scientists who found them said their calls are like the soundtrack of Psycho. He thinks there are only about a hundred of the birds left. Imagine that. Just discovered and already on the verge of extinction. Meanwhile, in Australia, Volvo has been having troubles... The large animal detectors on their self-driving cars, totally adequate in the face of deer, elk and caribou, are baffled by our kangaroos. It's the hopping, apparently. Which I get. It is pretty weird. Since we last spoke, the Norwegian government has scrapped a planned memorial for the victims of Anders Breivik. The proposed artwork would have seen a gash, three and a half metres wide, sever the tip of the peninsula that overlooks the site of the massacre. The artist called it a symbolic wound, but some locals called it a hideous monument which would be too invasive, too dramatic a reminder of the horror the landscape had witnessed. So, the peninsula will stay whole, and the people will drift apart. Chapter 2. A friend gave me the, the little gaydar detector because I have none. This is Will Peterson. I literally have no gaydar in Australia. And I've lived in this country for 11 years, so I wouldn't have a clue. It's like, I mean, if I saw two men having sex by the side of the street, I'd just think, oh, that's interesting, two straight guys having sex, helping each other out. I've been wanting to record with Will since forever, and early this year we finally got the chance. Kieran and I drove to Adelaide, we sat down in his apartment, and Mike's balanced on piles of art books. We began. Because I've already got a tangent to start with, because I've been watching When We Rise. Will's going through a weird time right now. Watching the American docodrama When We Rise means seeing moments from his own life played out on the screen. The places he lived in, the protests he was at, and the people he knew. And then they've got Guy Pierce playing the older version of Cleve. And I'm like looking at Guy Pierce thinking, Cleve is still alive. And also, Cleve has been HIV positive for over 20 years. And anyone of my generation who's been HIV positive for that long, if they're still alive, their faces have done strange things. And if you've been a part of that community, you can tell immediately. And it's like, so Guy Pierce, skinny Guy Pierce, even with the kind of waxy job they gave him on his skin, it's like, he just doesn't look anything like somebody who's been HIV positive for 20 years. It's 1978, and Will is a skinny blonde kid in Washington, D.C. 
I graduated from university and I saw this little ad, gay hotline phone number, and I thought um, I'd call. And, and within a year, I became an activist. Was you that know. the first time you'd said to someone that you were gay, that hotline? Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I called <laughs> called the number and Jerry answered and, and he's a Southern queen and he kind of in a kind of high pitched voice and kind of talks like this. And I had the, the, the conversation where like, I think I might be gay. I had a girlfriend. I'm talking to my therapist, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was, uh, he didn't have any time for that because we didn't really have a framework for even bisexuality back yeah. then. It was just like, you're, because you've been so fucked up by everything that you've never been able to tell anyone you're gay. That's, yeah. you're either gay or you're not, right? So we really didn't think in terms of anything other than that. And he just, just basically read me the riot act. Shit or get off the pot. That was what he told me. Will started going to a group that met every Saturday. Just to be in a room with 12 people who were willing to be openly gay and to have that conversation as a 21-year-old, well, nothing was ever the same after that. I came out into a cross-generational world. That's really clear to me. And that was the gift of coming out as a young gay man in Washington, D.C. I lived in group houses that older men owned these beautiful homes. And I had no money. And I lived in beautiful places. So my elders had been through it. You know, they knew what it was to be rounded up in paddy wagons, fingerprinted, for going to a bar, knocking three times and saying you're friends of Dorothy. Right? That's like they knew what it took. They remembered pre-Stonewall. The guys who were a generation older than me had big houses and they rented out some rooms and they liked having some younger guys around. It was kind of entertaining because like we were, you know, out and being young people and they were 40 or 50 and they just kind of thought it was sort of fun. That kept them going. And they were gracious and kind and they didn't require sexual favors or if they did I would just laugh at them it's like you would have dinner parties people had dinner parties and there could be 70 year olds and 19 year olds at the table I mean that was the gay world that I walked into Will says that he came out in the golden age if you came out in 1978 um, you know it was just 11 years after Stonewall and you were in a city like Berlin San Francisco New York or Washington I can't speak to other cities on the planet but if you were in one of those cities it was the best place to be probably forever you know gay was everywhere you know gay coffee shops and gay restaurants and gay bars and you know you could even have a gay boss three years you know I, I had three years before that disease hit He'd stayed friends with Jerry, the Southern Queen from the Gay Hotline, and in 1981, he went to visit him. San Francisco didn't look like any place I had ever seen on the planet, and I wasn't that well-traveled, but it's pretty magical. Everywhere you are in San Francisco, you know you're in San Francisco. The city spoke to him. And I was in in mid-conversation with a total stranger, and it was just kind of like just something took over my whole being and just said, you have to be here, you have to be here. And moved to San Francisco with a, you know, with a, a suitcase and a bicycle and $300. Will didn't move to San Francisco for the gay scene, but once he was there, he was really there. 
on the one hand, it was gay Disneyland because it was like everyone was gay. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, it was kind of like you could pose as much as you want. Any kind of eye contact, you could be direct, you could ask somebody if they want to fuck. The kind of thing that could go on only maybe in a, in a bathhouse, in a sauna, could happen on the street. So on that level, it was, it was exciting, it was charged. And, and for all of us who came from sexually uptight backgrounds, which was pretty much everybody, um, this was tremendously liberating. And so many of us were young. So many of us who were there were young men who had been quite frustrated. So what do we want to do? We want to have as much sex as possible. We want to fuck our brains out, frankly. And you just felt that sexual energy in, in the air, and it was really exciting. I worked uh, at the, uh, the Patio Cafe, which was the gayest restaurant on the planet And on those times. It was on, on Castro Street. And the reason I got a job there was what it was like. This gets back to the, the way in which people were sort of categorized as a certain type. So a friend of mine, Latino guy, his name was Vic Hernandez. He's quite a, quite a well-known personality. And I, I said, Vic, I hate my job. And he said, go to the Patio Cafe. Wolfgang, the German guy who runs the place, Wolfgang needs a twink and he'll hire you. He needs a blonde twink. And I walked in and I knew exactly what he meant. It's like he had no kind of like skinny blonde guy, right? And he had a pretty one and it just, like, he had a Brazilian. He had the muscle Mary. He had one. It was like casting for the village people. If you know that group, the village <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah. It's like we have one of everything except maybe there was no Indian chief, yeah. you know, at the patio cafe. And it really was, I walked in and because I looked a particular way, Wilking looked at me and he said, you're hired. Start tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> And so that's where I was when AIDS hit. It was so simple when it started. Somebody saw a mark on their body, and they said to their, their, their boyfriend, I have this thing, what, what, what is this? I mean, it, it started that way. It didn't start with big drama, you know, with a hundred people in overflowing medical wards like it is in When We Rise. It's, it started in really human ways. One of my fellow waiters, his hypothesis was it was what we called poppers, which was amyl nitrate, which was the stuff that you, you're on the dance floor and gives you the rush to the head. It was something that a lot of us used for sex, during sex, because it gives you this, you know, this massive state of this arousal that lasts for about two minutes. You know, it's a very male kind of thing, right? Or we'd do it on the dance floor, you know, dancing back in the disco days. It was a holdover from the disco days. So this was the conversation was, I think it's poppers. And I'm like, well, I don't do poppers. Well, I'm safe, right? Yeah. It's like, and I, I, had, I had an Asian boyfriend at the time, and I stopped dating him because I got STDs from him twice. I really love the guy, but I just couldn't cope with getting STDs twice. And he was very casual about STDs. He was like, well, like, what's the big deal? You just go down to the clap clinic, because there was this city-run clinic, and they jab you in your ass. They jab you with um, gamma globulin, GG shot, you know, just... Like, what's the big deal? It's like having a cold. He even said that. And there was just something in me that said, no, it's not like a cold. I can't do this. And I stopped dating him, you know. Um, at any rate, so his attitude was uh, when AIDS hit, he said, well, Asians aren't getting it. We must be immune. I mean, this is the level of, he was a smart guy. He worked in public health. But that's what he was thinking in 82, 83. And of course, he died a long time ago. I mean... But that was the kind of, you know, just the lack of awareness of what the hell was going on in those early years at ground level. In 1981, there were 159 cases of AIDS reported in the US. 
1982, that number had more than tripled to 771 reported and 618 deaths. The following year, it had more than tripled again, 2,807 cases reported and 2,118 deaths. By 1984, there were 7,239 cases and 5,596 deaths. 83, 84, that's when the disease was going like wildfire through the community because the infection rates had become so high they had reached this critical mass. And I know if I had stayed there then, I would have probably become HIV positive over that year. But he didn't stay. I went overseas. I lived in London, which is why I'm here. He fell in love with a guy with a posh British accent. That accent, that man, that city changed his life. When the relationship ended, he came back home. When I went back to San Francisco in September of 84, I swear I remember walking across just one block, which was kind of like the block between 18th and Castro and Market Street and Castro, right? It was almost packed full of people and people were posing and Beautiful boys like Peter Berlin, who was a famous porn star, who was a friend of Wolfgang's. He was always out there strutting his stuff. Um, so this is a place that you associate with, you know, this kind of very forward expression of gay sexuality. And there I am walking across that same street, and all I saw were, were men that I sort of vaguely recognized from a year or two earlier. Pretty, good-looking men. But now they were old men. They were walking with canes and, you know, with Zimmer frames. And they were covered with legions. They were hunched over. They had lost their hair. They were horrible colors. It was just like, it was the walking wounded. It was like, it was like zombie nation. It was like all of a sudden you were just seeing zombies everywhere because people looked so fucking bad. I think if I had stayed there, you would have gotten used to it, but to go away for a year and to come back and to see that at street level was just like, holy shit. And, of course, I came back to the stories of who was disappeared, you know. So every, every week there was this newspaper called the, um, the Bay Area Guardian, and it was full of obituaries. So in the beginning, in the early 80s, it was like one or two or three. And by the time um, we got to the mid-80s, it was like you would just, the whole, like, ten pages would be full of obituaries, all of young men. It's hard to overstate just how sick these people were. And everybody knew people who were dying in these horrible ways. People would die from kidney pneumonia, you know, like their cat got pneumonia and then they, their immune system was so non-existent that they would get it and, and pass away really quickly. And all this time, the government was doing nothing. President Reagan famously didn't mention AIDS in public until 1985, and it was only once that year, in response to a question from a reporter whom he couldn't avoid. At the patio cafe, the waiters remembered the Legionnaires' outbreak that affected another minority, the military, and the government rushing to find the cause and a solution. 29 people died in that outbreak. Huge money was spent into figuring out what was causing Legionnaire's disease. And there was no recognition. I mean, not only no recognition, I mean, the press secretary was making jokes about homosexuals. This is Deputy Press Secretary Larry Speaks, responding to journalist Lester Kinsolving. Disease control in Atlanta, the AIDS, is now an epidemic. We have over 600 cases. 
it's known as gay plague. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing that uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wonder if the president is aware of it. I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Do you? In other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke. No, I don't know anything about it, Lance. What does the president? Does anybody in the White House know about this epidemic, Larry? I don't think so. I don't think there's been Nobody any. There's been no personal experience here, Lester. <laughs> no patients he, he suffered from AIDS or whatever it is. The president doesn't have gay plague. Is that what you're saying or what? No, didn't say that. Didn't say that. In the face of the total disinterest of the government, the gay community took the issue into their own hands. The sisters were at the Castro Street Parade in 84, and they were passing out safe sex literature. The sisters were the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Wikipedia says they're a charity, protest and street performance group who use drag and religious imagery to satirise issues of gender and immorality. Will says they were a group of mostly beardy men dressed as mad nuns. And they would swan through the city and make a scene and appeared at gay functions. And they were also famous, uh, many of them were really kick-ass roller skaters. That year, 84, whilst the government was still laughing, the sisters passed out flyers. And it just basically said what we needed to know. Like, if you're fucking, you need to wear a condom. You know, oral sex is probably not going to get you sick, okay? And especially if you're the recipient of anal sex, then you definitely better make sure that whoever is fucking you needs to wear a condom. And they they communicated that, I think, with diagrams and with humor. Um, And they were just, you know, they were roller skating through Castro Street, handing this stuff out. And I got one. And I think... I don't know if I knew then, because that was the first time anybody put it out there that clearly. I think by 84, I probably had a suspicion, but it's like, but nobody that I could trust had ever said, it's just this simple, wrap it. You needed a nun on rollerblades. I needed a nun on rollerblades, exactly. (laughs) God bless the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, because I think they saved a lot of lives at that Castro Street Fair. Will was working as an activist at this time, and it wasn't easy. It was men and women in the room, and they didn't get along really well, I'm here to tell you. The ground level of activists for Washington, D.C., trying to get organizations together, it's like the women were distrustful of the men. The men were like, why are the women so angry and uptight? It's like, I remember the women got really, really, really angry, and I didn't understand why in my bourgeois, white boy, male way. I had no real understanding of why they were so damn angry. I understand now, really. Gay men and gay women had had such different experiences. My generation, those who grew up in the 50s or before, it's like, you know, the way we were socialized. And we didn't even have any understanding of of the kind of privileges that we had. We just saw ourselves as an oppressed minority. So, like, naturally our sisters are going to be, we're all going to have, that wasn't the case at all. And then AIDS came along, and that's when the communities came together. And it came together because there were a lot of women who just saw this suffering, and they put their hands up. And they volunteered, and a lot of them were nurses working in the public health system. There were a number of influential people who drove that. But it was the thing that brought men and women together, that brought lesbians and gays together um, at ground level and then in really human ways. And it it changed the gay movement forever. That's the only only fucking good thing that came out of that horrible time. 
There were protests, shouting, marches on Washington. The FDA was shut down for a day. Plays were written, bridges and roads were closed down. Chalk outlines of the dead were drawn on footpaths as part of staged mass die-ins. But there were also people helping in quieter ways, setting up hospices where people could go to die, people whose families and friends often wouldn't even touch them. It's like, and you know, you're checking out. It's like you just want someone who's there, right? Someone who's just real and acknowledging whatever is happening and who isn't afraid to touch you. But some people didn't even have this or couldn't accept it when it was offered. And so many of these people were abandoned by everybody. Yeah. Um, one of the saddest ones that was close to me was this uh, beautiful young man, a friend of a friend, his name was Jeff. And when he became ill, he never told anybody. And he just went away like a sick dog to die. And we heard about it afterwards. That's how people were finding out that people that they really loved died. You know, if somebody had just disappeared for a while, that was also cause for great concern. By this time, the government was finally paying attention. But many of their actions were seen by the community as attacks on sexual freedom. Because gay identity was so tied up with sexual liberation in those days, when it hit, a lot of people just couldn't fucking believe it. And so there was a lot of denial. And when the San Francisco Department of Public Health wanted to shut down the bathhouses, the saunas, the gay saunas, people, a lot of people were up in arms. It's like, what next, right? They'll be sending in the boxcars and you know, sending us to the concentration camps, putting numbers on it. You know, it's like you can understand why people had that hysteria, right? I mean, given where they came from, it's like, no, we're not going to shut down. This is, this is a part of our, 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 our freedom, our, 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 our sexual identity, our personal self-expression, to be able to go to these places and have sex. So it's like, you know, we're not going to let you shut them down, you know? We fought so hard to have such a place where where we could feel safe. A place where you could look at someone and they weren't going to beat you up for looking at them. Where your gaze could just look and you could live without that kind of fear. And I think about those Latino kids that were killed in Orlando. For those kids, Latino kids did not come out. For all the many deaths Will talked about in this interview, this was the only time he teared up. I think about those kids in that bar and how far they've come and, and what, it means, what it means to be in a safe space and, and to, feel, to feel, you don't feel that in the wider world, but you feel that in this bar, you know. So that's why when that happened, it was just kind of like it brought it all back to me. It's like, that's what these places meant. That's why they were important. What do you think it's done to your generation to be a generation of survivors? For me, I, one of the things I struggle with is, um, is just having homies, you know. It's like my homies are gone. For a time, we'll move to Palm Springs. And Palm Springs is like the gay retirement destination on the planet, okay? Yeah. So it's like the, the funny, smart, entertaining, pretty ones all died first and the fucking boring accountants survived, you know? It's just, it's this weird kind of really super shitty reverse natural selection. So you think back to the ones who died first and they were like the crazy ones who wore records on their hair sideways and, you know, just were outrageous and funny. And you think, you know, when I'm in that rest home, that gay rest home when I'm 90 years old, they're gonna entertain the crap out of me. They're gonna be so damn funny. We're gonna have such a good time. And they all win, you know, the beautiful dancers. And so you remember those people. So you think, okay, well, so I'll go to Palm Springs, but 
The ones that I really wanted to grow old with aren't there. But he still has this desire to be around others who have lived through it. Every time he went back to San Francisco, he'd go to Castro Street and, while it was still open, to the Patio Café. Wolfgang was dead by this time, a car crash, and Will hasn't been able to find any of his fellow waiters. I'm not sure if there are, if there are other survivors of the Patio Café from the mid-'80s out there. Please, um, put them in touch with me, because I really would like to know. Because it, 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 I have I've really felt I'm, like I'm the only one. I've never met anyone who knows anyone. And there were a lot of us who waited tables then. It was an iconic place. And I could be the only surviving waiter from that time. I think Will was exhausted by this interview. Exhausted by being the custodian of all this history. He says when he talks to others who have lived through that time, there is a sense of ease. You don't have to explain it all. They know. You both just know. All the deaths, all the beautiful young men who disappeared, they don't have to be spoken of. But he was glad to tell the story, to tell the people who weren't there what it was like. You know, emotionally, I think it has made me a more robust person, more willing to accept death than a lot of other people I know who are my age. And I'm thinking, why are you so afraid of this? <laughs> it's like, how can you even think that that is worth being afraid of? It's yeah, like, I got another 50 like, years. Like, like, I didn't die. I'm still alive. It's like, what a miracle that is. So, so like every year that you've made it after 30 is, is a miracle. Chapter 3. San Francisco is a strange city now because the Silicon Valley boom has meant that it's become extremely hot property for tech bros. And because San Francisco is so small, the whole city is only 12 miles by 12 miles big. There's only so many people you can put into that city before the rent and the housing prices start absolutely skyrocketing. And that's absolutely happened in the city Uh, When I was there, there was an Uber driver and he was saying that the rent on his apartment had increased by 300% in the last two years. And he was saying that it's such a strange city to live now because San Francisco used to be the place that you went to when you didn't have anywhere else to be. The drifters used to go there and the artists used to go there and the queer people used to go there. And now it's this strange place where there are still quite a lot of homeless people who are there. And then right at the top of the financial pyramid at the tech bros. And there isn't a lot of space in between anymore. It doesn't have that same laissez-faire attitude to life. Have either of you been to San Francisco? Once as a little kid. I went with my mum and my older sister and mum delights in telling the tale of how whenever she would see two men walking down the street holding hands or making out, she'd be like, look, look how different the lampposts are here than in Australia, kids. Look at that. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I should also point out that I'd made her explain what gay sex was to me before this time because of the AIDS ads. Hmm. So I was like, mum, I get like, I get how like people can get AIDS from each other. I don't, I don't understand how a man is getting AIDS from another man they're having sex and she, so she had to explain gay sex to me so you know she was pretty open-minded but san francisco um, broker <laughs> yeah i think she just uh maybe she just didn't want that to be the conversation that we were having walking down the street the whole time yeah. so did you know that men could love men and women could love women before that or was hiv how you learned that there was a gay population i think that might have yeah i i think that um the awareness campaigns 
led me to ask questions that I hadn't asked before, and I think I possibly didn't know that men could love other men at that point. Wow. It is amazing just to think of how much of our understanding of sex and society has been shaped by this epidemic. A lot of us for whom... HIV and AIDS hasn't necessarily touched us directly, have still been impacted in ways that we maybe don't even realise. I read a part of the transcript to someone the other day, Will talking about his Asian boyfriend, and their response was they they realised they had this automatic response of like, why weren't they wearing condoms? And this like, oh yeah, that wasn't a thing. Yeah, no one knew. <laughs> condoms were invented in 1984, like... They weren't, but, you know, there was a complete change of how we thought about sex Mm. and safety and the dangers of sex. I've been thinking about contemporary experiences of a pandemic and and how close that word is to panic. I was thinking about um, the swine flu and bird flu epidemics around 2009, 2010, and the way public space changed the way if you caught public transport during that time and someone coughed, you could feel people's muscles tightening and you could feel people starting to just move away and and seeing someone with a face mask on. It was like someone marking themselves as a leper. It was really strange. I remember being at the university health centre and there'd be people dotted around the waiting room wearing masks because you had to present yourself to the reception and say if you had flu-like symptoms and just watching people staring at people who are visibly unwell with this look of just horror like you have it you have the illness was something I'd never experienced before was extremely unsettling I had swine flu I was very sick when Uh, did you have swine flu (laughs) when I was at university I lived in a share house and the share house was really squalor is the only word for it uh-huh. And I was sick enough to go to the doctor every week for a whole semester with a multitude of different things. And then around the time I had law exams, I went into the doctor and I said, I can't breathe. I'm asthmatic. And the doctor was like, oh, women shouldn't wear so much perfume. And I went, what? I'm not wearing perfume. And he was like, men can't even smell it. Women wear too much perfume. And he sent me away. And I was like, "Ah." Oh, All right. And that night I was tanking Ventolin every 12 minutes because I was having so much trouble breathing. And I went back in the next day and I was like, I don't know, I think I'm quite sick. And the nurse was like, oh, yeah, we tested your results and you have swine flu. You should have gone to hospital. You really could have died last night. And I was like, oh, well, I was just told not to wear perfume. So. (laughs) Wow. Way Um, to doctor, doctor. Yeah. I had this experience recently. I was back in Adelaide while we were recording with Will, actually. And I'd brought back over with me a bunch of stuff belonging to my grandmother because we've just moved her into a home. And my dad was sitting there going through some of his mother's stuff home and he just said, come over here, uh, have a look at this. And he passed me the sermon given two days after his father's death. I had never known his father. His father was a minister who died of a brain tumour before I was born. I cried so much reading this. It was this minister he basically talked about. Uh, I was sitting with Barry trying to give him counsel and he was clearly trying to say something and and his disease made this impossible and he was trying really hard and he sort of managed to get out that he was trying to talk about the goats and the sheep. And from this, I take this lesson and spun this big sermon out of it about how the church all better get along now that their pastor had just died. Mm. What I took from it was this moment of real 
connection to actually getting to read a first-hand account of this person I'd never known in the last week of their life and and still having things they wanted to say and do and not being able to articulate them because of what's going on inside his body. I've heard about this HIV epidemic for so many years, this whole generation that have gone. And we can grab little echoes of them here and there from other people's stories, from something someone has written down, from something someone chooses to share with you. It's a really remarkable feeling when you actually get to speak to a first-hand source or hold something in your hands that actually says these people were here and this is how they lived and this is how they died. During the Comedy Festival, Hannah Gadsby, a comedian, performed her show Nanette, which was her farewell to comedy and which was her just being really angry about what it is to be a lesbian woman in today's society, to be so attacked on so many sides. And she was talking about growing up in Tasmania and growing up surrounded by people debating whether she was allowed to be a person and whether she was allowed to legally love the people that she loved. And the fact that those conversations were happening not very long ago and are still happening. The conversations about, you know, are we allowed to have the Safe Schools program in Australia where we teach kids that it's okay to be gay so they don't kill themselves, where we teach kids that it's okay to be trans so they don't kill themselves. The federal Australian government refuses to support that program now. That's a pretty strong statement from the highest possible authorities. I think what Nanette reminded me of actually was I I spend like a lot of time listening to American news media and I often listen to it with this sort of sense of like, what's wacky old America doing now? Like right now in particular, it feels like listening to the most bizarre serial that there has ever been. Every morning I'm like, now it's time for the news and it'll be horrible, but it's kind of fictional because I've never been to America and it doesn't really exist. Um, (laughs) I think that sometimes I put home homophobia, like real, violent, frightening homophobia into that category of fantasy American stuff. And that's partly because of my privilege as a straight female that I have not experienced it personally because I know gay friends who have um, here in Melbourne. And it is partly wishful thinking. And it's also partly that I grew up surrounded by gay people, parenting, being being parents, being part of a community, and so homophobia has just always seemed so foreign to me. Nanette reminded me it isn't foreign. It's homegrown as much as it is anything else. In fact, Hannah Gatsby grew up where I was born on the west coast of Tasmania and suffered terribly for the plight of just being born there. It's recently been Pride Month in the US and... I think sometimes that word has become so associated with waving banners and and rainbow flags that we sometimes forget the profundity of that word and how hard it was to be proud of who you were when everyone you know was dying and there were Christian commentators saying, finally, God is stepping in. And the reason you're dying is because you are sinners. And being able to stand up and say, I am proud of who I am and I'm proud of who I love, with that happening, with no idea what was causing it, I mean, like, I can't imagine that happening to me and a little part of me not going, maybe, maybe, maybe that's why this is happening. This idea of of passing on judgment through sex is so, so rooted in the way humans treat each other. And the fact that, that people could stand up and be proud and exhibit pride through all that, I think is just remarkable.
Contact Mike is a podcast about people by Sarah Walker, Flo Kilpatrick, produced by Kieran Ruffles. Come find us on Facebook, Twitter, and on iTunes. This has been Contact Mike. This episode episode ends ends now. now. All right, let's go home.